Πόσο σ' αγαπώ, πόσο σε λατρεύω Θα σε καρτερώ μέχρι να σε δω Hello and welcome to Filmwalk. This is Glenn. I'm here with Daniel. Hello. To kick off 2022, we are uh, starting in the same way as we kicked off 2021 by skipping the entire month of January. Not our favorite uh, month. I don't know what it is, Daniel. It might be because there was a uh, another COVID surge to deal with this year that I kind of thought we'd be done with by now. But, uh, but yeah, we just kind of took it easy and watched TV this month. It was uh, some good TV, though. It was a big month for television, not so much for film. There were plenty of films that dropped in January, as ever, from uh, the list of, of great films that we wanted to catch up on from 2021. So as is tradition for the Filmwalk podcast, we will be checking out two streaming selections uh, of films that we meant to check out in 2021, but just did not get the chance to. Later in the show, we will be reviewing the directorial debut of one Maggie Gyllenhaal, and that is an adaptation of the Elena Ferrante novel, The Lost Daughter. But first, we will be checking out a new selection on Prime Video from writer-director Oscar Farhadi, A Hero. That was from the trailer of A Hero, the new film written and directed by Iranian filmmaker Oscar Farhadi and starring Amir Jadidi, Sahara Goldust, Saleh Karimaye, Ali Reza Jahandade, and Mariam Shadaye. Oh, uh, we've also got Mosin Tanabande. There are sev- there's a, an entire ensemble of characters in this film, and I wa- don't want to give any of them short shrift here. There's even a fairly significant cabbie that appears in this film, uh, played by Ali Ranjbari. Uh, this film takes place in Tehran, uh, as did the first film that we saw from writer-director Asghar Farhadi. That was a separation, and uh, he is he's an Iranian filmmaker who uh, I believe he lives in France primarily. That's where he gets his film financing from, but he still uh, goes back and shoots uh, uh, shoots films in his home country sometimes, uh, and this was one of those. You could tell because it began with a title card that said, In the Name of God. Did you catch that, Daniel? Uh, I did not. No, I missed that. It happens on the screen at the very beginning, right after the, uh, uh, apparently this film won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, and right after that is another title card that says, in Persian, uh, in the name of God, uh, or in Farsi, I should say, and it's... Um and at the bottom, it was subtitled in the name of God. This is apparently uh, the Iranian equivalent of made in the USA. Uh, it's it's uh, just something that a lot of creatives throw at the beginning of their films to try and get uh, try and get a positive read from the censors uh, going in. So that's an interesting little yeah, bit of context. Work. We we actually we actually heard it once in the film as well, right as a radio program was about to begin. Um, the announcer sort of, you know, announced the time, announced the station, and then said, in the name of God, and then and then proceeded. Um, so I, I found that to be an interesting detail. But um, so this is a film that, like a separation, is attempting to craft a sort of moral maze uh, and let, let the audience get wrapped up in it. Um, it's a film where the basic premise can be spelled out in a single line, you know, in a separation, it's a couple getting divorced and figuring out what they want to do with their uh, with with their various family responsibilities as they dissolve their marriage. But there's just a lot more going on than the initial thrust of that story. And this is one of those as well. Uh, we have Amir Jadidi plays uh, the character of Rahim Sultani, and he has been released from debtor's prison, where he has been for at least the last two months uh, for a debt that he has owed for three years of a significant amount of money. 
he's got a two day furlough uh, in the hopes of negotiating down his debt so that he can come out of out of debtor's prison and, uh, you know, rejoin society, rejoin his uh, his lady friend, rejoin his son who is living with his brother and with his brother in law and sister. So there's a lot at stake here. Uh, And we learn that he thinks he's going to be able to pay off his debt because somebody's going to give him a lot of money. We don't know much else beyond that and, and kind of where it goes from there is many, many places. Um, I saw that uh, that local film uh, film critic David Chen uh, compared this movie to Uncut Gems, uh, which I thought was a very interesting comparison because in a similar way, this is sort of spinning a yarn around somebody who is doing something crazy dangerous with something very valuable uh, and, and it just going wrong and continuing to go wrong as he makes more and more bad decisions to make his situation worse. But in the in traditional Oscar for Hadi fashion, what is happening to him is not uh, all that plain. Uh, it's not all that simple. There are a lot of details to it. There's there are a lot of different ways in which we could interpret what's happening to him. So um, we're probably gonna have to get into spoilers here pretty quick in order to be able to properly discuss this film. But uh, Daniel, I am curious, what did you think of this film? I don't know if I would compare it to Uncut Gems. I can see where the comparison is being made, but it doesn't have nearly that frenetic pace the uncut gem tag. I kind of thought it was like Dear Evan Hansen, to be honest, where like <laughs> he, he, he gets a, you know, he does a good deed, but not really. And, uh, it gets, you know, blasted. And then as it becomes more and more popularized, people are like, wait a minute, there's some holes in this story. Yeah. I think we, we, we can talk about what exactly he becomes famous for, uh, when we get into spoilers here. I don't think I want to get into, uh, too much detail on that, but this movie has a little bit in common with a film that we reviewed a few years ago ago at SIF called Glory, which was a political satire out of Eastern Europe. I don't recall exactly which country it was from, but um, a character finds a bag of money on the railroad tracks and becomes this sort of symbol of incorruptibility that is used by the powerful to uh, to try and sort of bolster their reputation. And there's a little bit of that going on in this film as well, but it's a very different take on that sort (gasps) of thing. Was it like a Bulgarian film or something? I believe it was a Bulgarian film, yes. Um, And but you know that's very much a case of I think what what those what these two films have in common is their main characters are simple and uncomplicated and really guileless people. Like what you see is what you get with them. They're not trying to pull one over on anybody even though they are surrounded by people who are all trying to run a game of some kind or another. So in a way it's kind of unpleasant to watch what happens to this guy because you can just see all the different ways in which he could make his situation a little bit better if he had just a little bit more street smarts going on he makes a lot of bad decisions that are not entirely his fault but they make his they make his situation worse and you're just like come on dude <laughs> yeah a little sleight of hand a little bit of some streetwise street smarts and he would have uh, been free and clear but nope he, uh, he blunders into one mistake after another, and his honor is very important to him, and that kicks him into even more trouble. Yeah, I think that what is always fascinating about an Oscar for a hottie film is that, uh, you know, and this is one of the reasons why, why we like Iranian cinema in general, is because it really feels like a completely different frame of reference from what we're used to. And spotting the ways in which Iranian culture is comparable to our own and spotting the ways in which Iranian culture is completely different from our own is often one of the most interesting parts of watching these films, in particular with a filmmaker like Farhadi, because so much of what he is trying to express here is based on uh, is based on what his own notions of morality are, or at least what, what notions of morality he's keen to explore with this fictional story here. And that's always grounded in the culture of the place where you, where you, grew up and where you picked up those ideas so i think 
that that aspect of this film is still pretty interesting, but I would not put this film on the same level as a separation. And I think I, I landed on the reason why when discussing this with my wife the other night. I think with the separation, I felt like I was watching a story that gradually revealed its moral complexity. And the moral complexity was serving the story and not vice versa. This feels more like it was a moral maze that was constructed in that way. It felt like I, I could not shake the feeling while watching this film that I am watching an important fable right now. And these characters just represent things that the filmmaker is keen to say about society. And that's always true to some extent, no matter what the film is. But it's not a feeling that I like to experience while watching the film. And I did feel it here and I, where I did not feel it with a separation. I'm, cu- I'm curious if you feel the same way about that whether or not i felt it was a fable or not yeah did you feel as if the film had something important to say to you about how society regards heroes or how society uh consumes simplistic narratives it is not interested in complexity or you know all the stuff the movie was clearly keen to say to us yeah i mean that that stuff was present but I, i don't think it was some grand you know statement on the concept it was it was a tale involving that concept. Um, I, I liked I liked the movie. I liked watching it. I thought the uh, the kid uh, was convincing. Whether or not that that kid actually has a stutter or not, he he did a very good Joe Biden impersonation. So that guy's great. This was Saleh Karimai as Siavash, who was Rahim's son. Yeah, and he has a he has a stammer that is fairly important to the plot as the film goes on. Um, I also want to call out uh, Serena Farhadi, who is the the daughter of director Oscar Farhadi, who was actually in the movie A Separation. She played uh, the the couple's child in that film. Uh, now she's you know twenty three and she plays the uh, child of a much older man in this film. And uh, this is a character who doesn't have a ton to do until the second half of the film, but it makes uh, she has to sell a lot of dimensions to that character and why she is acting the way that she is acting over the course of this. And I think that that's, that's a character that largely works. I would also say uh, Bahram, who is played by Mohsen Tanabande, uh, who is, uh, who is Raheem's creditor, the one that he owes all this money to. This guy could be just a simple villain. He could be just, you know, the heartless, miserly moneylender who doesn't want to show mercy on this poor guy who just wants to get back to his family. And uh, for the movie to initially allow us to perceive him that way and then kind of upend that perception over the course of the film, I thought was definitely an accomplishment. Um, that I mean, that performance was one of the best things in the film. He, he's clearly the strongest character in the film. Uh, and he needs to work on his uh, grappling a little bit, but I think ah. I think in terms of uh, uh, moral rectitude, he's rather firm. Yeah, I definitely liked his character. Having a character who, I mean, this is something that Farhadi was fascinated with, with a separation as well. He always likes exploring characters who are acting based on what are clearly deeply held convictions, whether or not the audience believes in them or not. And in this film, I think he did a good job of establishing why everyone was acting the way that they were acting, why they thought that was right for themselves. Um, so I I appreciated that, even if it was not all that pleasant to watch. <laughs> I think for me, the best scenes had to do with the charity, and we could get into that uh, in spoilers because I feel like how our heroes or, or our protagonists' actions impacted a charity and how that charity could assist others. That was really interesting. That to me was the most interesting dynamic in the film, uh, j- just because of the profound implications that that had for a, a neighborhood, a region, a lot of destitute people. And their stake in, in, in what was going on mattered. And, and I think it was, a, it was a good perspective to show. 
Yeah, I think that uh, the charity is definitely, it, it, and it's fascinating to see a charity uh, in Iran filling in a different set of, I guess, uh, society dropping balls and charity picking them up. Um, that's the role that charity fulfills in any society. Um, you know, a, a charity is there for people to give to and feel good about themselves for helping out a small number of people with problems that society can't solve on can't or Why won't are solve you describing own. what a charity is? I think everybody who listens to this podcast also knows what that is. Well, so it's interesting to see that in the context of a completely different society where charity is used for different purposes here. I mean, this is a and I think we can talk about what the charity does when we get into spoilers here. I think that'd be a little bit much, but um it's interesting to see the sort of overlap in different pe- different people that they are taking care of in this society because it's very much tied into how the legal system functions in Iran. Right. Hey, you know, I, I think it's nice that Duggar's prisons allow like a weekend holiday to go out and see your family. That's nice. I mean, I, I, I've read about that in other, you know, countries, but from a different time. The depiction of a prison here was one of the most fascinating things about the film. I was curious if this was, I mean, it's a debtor's prison, so maybe it's a lower security kind of. It's like a workhouse. It, that's what it felt like was a workhouse. People were sort of like a halfway house. People were reporting there voluntarily, but under the force of law, they have to go there, but they're not going to be dragged in in handcuffs. And, um, you know, they are, uh, they're allowed to, they're allowed to do things. They're, you know, they go play basketball in a gym that, you know, they've got a director of cultural programs that, uh, you know, sets him up. Uh, Raheem is a, is a painter and a sign, a sign painter and a calligrapher. So he does all this calligraphy and artwork around the, uh, around the prison. We see the outside is covered in these beautiful bird paintings that he's made. So, um, so, you know, there's, there's a certain amount of what's the point of locking this guy up? Just, you know, let him out and share his art with the world. Like you're not going to get any money from a, from this guy while he's locked up in prison. So I think a certain amount of him, get him being furloughed was you get furloughed if there's a chance of renegotiating your debt in some way. Um, and that seems to be a consistent theme in Iranian legal culture is that the family of the aggrieved party becomes a consistent negotiating partner with you in some way. Like it's, it's not like a, an objective legal system just takes, it just applies the law to whoever the offender is or applies the law to whatever the whatever the disagreement is. That's, in theory, how the American legal system is supposed to operate. But uh, it, it seems like the family of the, the family of the victim of a crime or the family of the uh, plaintiff in a, you know, in a civil case gets to continue to have a stake in what happens to the person that they're that they're having a dispute with basically if i that's if a pretty interesting aspect of their legal system even if it seems kind of unwieldy to manage in progress in practice well i think the idea of denouncing someone being such a severe action uh is pretty interesting because it's, it's so unlike you know u.s culture where everyone denounces everybody and nobody cares right that, that's the whole the whole point of twitter is just denouncing people uh <laughs> but uh but in Iran, like it has societal, uh, you know, uh, implications to denounce somebody publicly. Like it shames them. It, it impacts their finances. It impacts their standing in the community. And that's not really something we have here. Or at least we don't have it to the same degree. So I, I thought that was an interesting angle to the story. Yeah, it's... Uh... And I think we, we we should probably go ahead and get into spoilers here because there are entire aspects of the plot we haven't gotten into. And uh, I don't think we have too much more to say about the film. But uh, Daniel, overall, would you recommend this film? Yeah, you know, like it wasn't, I wouldn't say it's thrilling, uh, but it was definitely an entertaining and engaging film. And I, I always like going and seeing Iranian films. I don't think, like, I, yes, we tend to see the cream in the crop, but 
I haven't like been disappointed yet, and I don't think we've had one that's missed. So from a separation to uh, what was it, a fishing cat to you know to this film, uh, a hero, I've liked them all. Need I remind you, you did watch a film called Everybody Knows, which was also an Oscar for a hottie film, but it was one that he shot in Spain, and I recall you were not a huge fan of that one. So well, because so it happened a... in Spain and not Iran. So. Ah, well, there you go. Yeah. This film is on is on Prime Video if you want to check it out, and um, it, it's one of these ones where if the idea of a film that deals with immense moral complexity and expects you to have a nuanced opinion about it appeals to you, you would not go far wrong with Oscar Farhadi. If you have not checked out A Separation, I would strongly recommend checking that one out first, as I believe it to be his best film, but uh, this one I would say is... It is solid and it held my interest, which uh, is is not high praise for a filmmaker of this caliber, but it's high enough praise uh, that I would still recommend the film. All right, well, from here on out, spoilers for A Hero. So, uh, uh, Daniel, you were talking about the charity. So this is the charity that raises uh, funds for destitute uh, people who are trying to get married and need money for their daughter's dowries and people who have been accused of murder uh, who need comparable things, who need blood money to pay back the family of their victim, which is just quite a pair of different things for the same charity to handle. You know what? They they handle both ends of the spectrum, you know, from marital bliss to uh, murder. I think it all works out. I, I think they're doing God's work. Let's talk a little bit about the specifics here. So he's looking to sell these gold coins, the gold coins that he uh, that his his girlfriend turns out she's his fiance Fracande found at a bus stop. They have it in their heads to sell them and pay off his massive debt to Bahram. Speaking, okay, okay, I, I want to touch on the debt for for one second. So Please, he, I was he, cover this. he owes about one hundred fifty thousand real, right? Uh, I think that's how you pronounce the the currency. That's the thing. I don't actually know if that's accurate. They kept citing the value in tomans. Right. I, I typed in tomans, and tomans are apparently it's the a unit same of ten thousand real. Yeah. Um, so I, I no, it's that's the thing. It's not the same thing. A toman is ten thousand real. It's it's a it's a super unit of their existing currency. The idea being that their existing currency is so devalued that everybody's dealing in units of ten thousand at a time as it is. So might as well have a shorter a shorthand for that. I actually visited Romania when I was sixteen, and it was before they revalued their currency, and we were routinely spending fifty thousand lei, which was about a buck thirty at the time. Uh-huh. So. Uh- because I, I ran this through a currency calculator, and I was like, "Oh, his deck's like four U.S. dollars. Why didn't he just give me a call? I would have, I would have, I would have given him a five spot. He could keep the change. It's fine. I, I spend more on uh, you know, lotto tickets. I don't care." <laughs> well, yeah. So if the amount that he owed was seventy five million taman, the the currency calculator that I ran through, if it was seventy five million Iranian rial, that was only about eighteen hundred dollars. Yeah, I could uh, probably so. spot him that. Like, that's but fine. if it was, but if it was seventy five million times 10,000 real or 75 million tomans, then it would have been 17 million US dollars that he would owe or seven. million But that doesn't make any real, sense. Which doesn't make any sense, exactly. So I think this was just a case of the translation getting it wrong. They probably, uh, tr- because what they were saying in dialogue was was tomans. I could hear it. I could hear them saying yeah, that word. Yeah, they said tomans, yeah. 
Um, but uh, but obviously the numbers were. My guess would be the translator ran the ran the number of tamans through a currency translator, but assuming they were real instead of taman. So I think the, I think that he owes about eighteen hundred dollars is right. Iranian GDP per capita is about twenty two hundred per year as of twenty twenty one. So yeah, the idea that he owes about a year's wages sounds about right. I mean, how much could you lose on a sign painting business anyway? Right. So Raheem, I'm just telling you. you, you you could have uh, sent. Uh, you could have set up like an OnlyFans for your lady and had that pay off in like a month. So this is like this whole problem narrative that we experience could have easily gone away with a few like feet pics. Like, come on. <laughs> if only Iran were a much wealthier country than it is. Is that the idea? Or, or like people are a little bit more savvy with their, you know, with the internet. That's all. Well, I mean. Rahim apparently took money from a loan shark to begin with. And this is where Bakram becomes a bit more defensible here because Bakram was in Rahim's family. Apparently, uh, it was his sister-in-law was connected to him in some way. I didn't I didn't quite follow what their family connection was. It was a family connection through marriage. Uh, he was, um, Rahim was married to Bakram's uh, sister-in-law. That's what it was. So it must be his his ex-wife's sister. This Bakram was her husband. Yeah. Uh, and so he, uh, he apparently... He owned, he owns like a copy shop or something along those lines, and he apparently had enough money that he was able to pay off the debt to the loan shark and and write checks. But he had to like sell his wife's uh, jewelry, he had to sell his daughter's dowry, which Big is deal. why Nazanin at Serena Farhadi is so is so fucking angry when she sees Raheem come by. Yeah, um, right both because so. of that. And also because both because of, of what he directly cost her, but also because of the effect that she can see that he is having on her father, and that we see that that's the reason why she's acting the way she is and that we see that that's the reason why he's acting the way he is. All of a sudden, this guy who has just been this figure of hatred who's just like, no, he's full of shit. Every, you know, every part of this story about him finding the, the bag and finding the coins, he, you know, he's a liar. He made it up. He was just trying to get your sympathy. Like, he might be right or he might not be right, but like we, like we it's reasonable for him to assume that even though we, the audience, know that Raheem is basically telling the truth because because that's what we get from the very beginning. We know that this messy story played out exactly the way that he's that he's telling us. You know, all the lies on top of lies <laughs> happened because other people told him to simplify the narrative, and then that simple that simplicity of the narrative ended up fucking him over in the end. Well, yeah, they're like spin the narrative so it makes you look better, and he's not good at that. <laughs> So. Yeah, it's not it's not just that it's that they they tell him to tell these easy lies as if it's the simple thing it's kind of like uh when somebody goes on twitter uh, and they're like you know it's either the slash r slash relationship advice subreddit or it's the slash r slash am i the asshole people always give these very very simple and glib answers to it and i'm just like there's no way that these people are going to do what the folks on twitter say like they're ultimately going to do whatever they want to do <laughs> well right that's um, why i give bad advice because it's funny that way well, so that so that seems to be what this movie is keen to upend in some way. The idea of, you know, hearing a story on social media, deciding immediately that you know exactly what happened and deciding immediately that you know who the heroes and the villains are. And that's what this movie is keen to present. A hero that would not withstand scrutiny, not because he didn't do a heroic thing, but because the heroic thing that he did is just too mired in, in dirty details for us ever to really believe. Well, and the only reason why he did the heroic thing, quote unquote, was because he wasn't getting a good value on the coins. Yeah. I mean, well, that's not the only reason. That's the main reason he would have sold the coins that day. If it paid off his debt. 
Uh, I don't know. If, I don't know if we can assume that. I think we can. Like he, he keeps the coins because he wasn't getting a good price. He's like, oh, did exchange? And the gold, uh, the goldsmith's like, yeah, it changes every hour. <laughs> yeah, he did say that. But then later on, he's spinning a story about how the calculator didn't work and the pencil didn't work. And that's the one thing where like we know he actually is embellishing. I wouldn't say lying exactly. He's just like throwing in little details of his of his own perfect ethical decision making. Well, that's but, why you mentioned it. it's a lot like a fable. And in that way, it's kind of like a fable, right? Like the calculator didn't work. The pencil didn't work. It was a sign up from God that I need to like you give this right you know give these coins back in the rightful owner yeah and much like the green knight another a movie that i liked a bit more than this one uh it was my number one movie it's not a christmas year. movie uh totally is it's an absolutely but not. the christmas is literally the reason why the entire plot happens no it gets incidentally involves christmas the power of christmas christmas spirit christmas cheer is not integral to the plot of the movie well, speaking of places where the power of Christmas is not integral to the plot, back in Iran, where this movie takes uh-huh. place, this movie reminded me a tiny bit of The Green Knight because it's dealing with a character who uh, sort of chose the fate that he ends up getting at the end of the film. It just takes him a while to realize that. That's kind of what I felt during the last half of this film. I was just like, this guy has already blown his chance. It's just a matter of, of when he gets back to prison, not if. I like the uh, investigator guy that they that they run into where he's just like he's just poking holes he's like i'm not gonna grant you like this job opportunity like there's way too many like it could it could mean nothing to this guy <laughs> to just let him let raheem through but he, he won't do it we get that moment of uh oh yeah and of course we we know we know that if he just went ahead and proceeded with the plan if he went with the happy and tidy narrative and he hired Raheem Raheem would be a good worker and Raheem would would do the job and he would pay off his debt like he's supposed to at least to the best of his ability he might fuck up but he's not going to fuck up on purpose instead he refuses because the details of the story don't quite add up and and there's a great moment involving the cabbie uh who's only ever known as the taxi driver in the credits uh, played by Ali Ranjbari and we already saw this guy refuse to charge Raheem for a cab ride uh because he he spent 2 years unjustly in prison himself and he would never charge a prisoner for uh for a fare uh just cuz you know the world's the world's not fair and they I mean what what did you think this movie if anything had to say about the Iranian justice system and debtors prison being a thing I mean do you think this was intended to be satire for an Iranian audience to say, hey, it's kind of fucked up that we're still doing this? Like, we don't have debtors prison in our country, but we have lots of other fucked up things in our prison system in our country. So this isn't me judging. This is me trying to apply a, like a moral framework for the country in which the film was made and released here. I mean, it's hard to say. I've never been to Iran or really interacted with the culture, so I, I can't say how accurate it is in terms of how it depicts the justice system there. I would say it reminded me a little bit of uh, 18th century London because they definitely had debtors' prisons that they threw people in all the time. <laughs> and you were allowed to leave, but you had to pay for everything you got in prison. <laughs> so it was a perpetuating you know, circumstance where, well, I can't pay my debt, so how could I pay for better food? <laughs> how could I pay for blankets? You could get married, though, in prison, so that, that was a nice perk. Well, that's a human right, so... Now, guy, given your human rights... 
So Farcande, uh, who is a speech therapist that he met uh, through his son's uh, speech therapy, and she became his girlfriend and eventually his fiance. She's the one who found the gold coins in the first place. And she is madly in love with him, even makes a few very, very uh, like almost sexual innuendos or the most that will pass for that in the, in a film that is released in Iran. Um, she, she, she made a reference to wanting to say, give him a proper goodbye um, somewhere in private. So that's, that's something at least. Yeah. And you know, a nice warm hug, maybe a cup of tea exactly so she's crazy about the guy and to the point that she's willing to get invested in this scheme and even pose as the woman whose uh whose coins that uh uh were found um so daniel did you ever consider the notion that the lady who, the lady who brought the coins might have been a scammer or might have might have taken him for a ride or i mean is that a possibility we never find out because we never see her again oh that, that that woman covered all our tracks she was definitely a scammer you think oh, you yeah. think he just got ripped off or do oh, you yeah. think you think that her story was true that she just couldn't tell, you know she couldn't go public with it because her husband didn't know no no there was it was too clean of a getaway like nobody knew who this person was he disappeared basically like it was definitely like a, it was a scam i guess here is my problem with assuming that it's a scam i feel like the movie is inviting me to assume that it was a scam it presents no evidence that it wasn't a scam well, sure. It pre- the evidence that it presents that it wasn't a scam was that scene with the woman showing up and explaining the reason why it happened and exactly where and how it happened. She correctly described the bag. She correctly described what was in it well enough that he was willing to send her to, to see his sister. And we saw this woman. And I, unfortunately, I wasn't able to find the actress's name here. But my feeling in that moment, based on the performance that that actor gave, was that the impression that I was supposed to get as a viewer was that she was telling the truth, that this was her bag, that those were her coins, and that she was really just weeping because she had such a close call. And, you know, she really does want to she really does want to pray to God that somebody finds a way to get Raheem out of prison like that's the best she can do. I took that woman at face value, even as they were poking holes in her story later on. I I was still like, well, no, that's not the impression I got watching her. And I feel like the movie was trying to get me to deny the evidence of my own eyes here a little bit. I, I may be giving the movie too much credit here, but that's what I think the movie was going for here. Well, she didn't like look to the camera and do like a big wink, you know, <laughs> continue the scene. But that's true. I took it as she either scammed or mess- misled. Uh, Raheem and Raheem's sister and, and, and got the coins and disappeared. That's interesting. And that was it. I guess because I think that every everybody's motives involving anything to do with these coins gets deconstructed over the course of the film here. And, and Bakram writes, rightfully points out like, yeah, you gave the coins back, so you didn't steal them. Well, I, I haven't stolen anything in my life. Where's my certificate? You know, from a charity saying that I'm a, that I'm an awesome dude. And that's right before he explains why he wants all of his money back, even though he's being, you know, he's unyielding about it. But he's in the right. He's in the right somewhat. You know, he should probably make a deal because he's never going to get all that money back because that's the nature of lending people money is sometimes you lose your money, (laughs) but he's not wrong to want it back in this instance. So, yeah, anyway, um, that's about all I got, Daniel. I think that the the movie's willingness to force the audience to grapple with how would this look if you didn't have all this information versus how does it look when you do have all this information? I think that's kind of the lasting appeal this movie has for me. I, I did not find it as as entertaining to watch. I think mostly because there was no there was not really much mystery to it in the same way as a separation. That was a lot of a lot of the appeal of a separation was you didn't know the entire mystery going in. Whereas this is more like here's where they're going to give you every detail about what happens with this guy. But he's just going to make a situation a little bit worse in every scene. Well, in that way, it's more of a cut and dry uh, narrative. Yeah. 
I suppose. You see him make the mistake, and then you see the consequences of the mistake. Honestly, the best part of the movie is when he's brawling with the Zeo creditor. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, I was highly was. amused at the really shitty grappling. <laughs> yeah, and even that was, uh, I mean, it was the worst possible thing because... Because, of course, his, you know, his daughter, Nazanin, is going to release this video that's that's going to accurately describe this guy came to our shop and attacked my father. Yeah. And uh, and, you know, without provocation. And it's not true that it wasn't without provocation. I mean, the guy the guy talked shit about him, talked shit about his son, said that people don't respect you. They're just uh, they're just they just pity you because, you you know, you, you drag your kid with the stammer up there and beg them for money. And I mean, he's not wrong. So get- he's not wrong. That kid was front and center all the time. And that kid. It has a speech impediment that is rather severe. He's not severe. wrong, but that doesn't make it a kind thing to say. It, it's fighting words. Like, you, you insult somebody's place in the world in that way. Like, it, like he was trying to get a rise out of him because he couldn't get his money out of him. He was like, you know, no, fuck you. Like, you're not, I will not, I will not concede what you say you are. You are not a person who is admired. Uh, this was right before he tried to call him jealous, you know, because people would think, uh, people would think highly of me and not of you. Yeah, they, they wanted to fight. They fought. That's what I'm here for. Sometimes I just want to see a couple old guys fight. Well, he left the shop and then he came back in and forced the door open, which means that it looked it looked even more like he attacked without provocation in the video because there's no evidence of a prior conversation on the video. It was just him showing up and attacking without mercy. Mm-hmm. So like he could not have sabotaged himself more thoroughly in that scene. Yeah, he's uh, not the smartest. What did you think of the prison officials, uh, the prison officials and the charity? And you said that was one of the more interesting parts of the movie. Do you have anything more to say about that? I just feel like the the charity trying to protect their interests and debate whether or not they should just hang this guy out to dry or try to preserve some of his honor was interesting, right? Because like the, the charity is under no obligation to, to support this guy after they find out that there's layers of mistruth weaved into his story. But at the same time, they're like, yeah, but maybe like maybe we should find a, a compromise that you still come out ahead, but we get give the money to someone whose husband's about to get hung. You know, like yeah, it, he ends up he ends up reluctantly agreeing to that, and then the uh, and then we have the charity wanting to we have we have his girlfriend wanting to encourage the charity to put out an announcement on that. We have the prison wanting to encourage him to put out an announcement on that and use his son. And ultimately, that's the moment where he finally takes charge and he's just like, you know what? I will not use my son in this way. I'm not going to feed him to these people. I'm not going to throw him to the social media wolves. I am just gonna I'm just gonna take my licks and go back to prison. And I got to say, that's the one moment where it really felt like he was not just sort of drifting on the current of this story. It felt like he was actually making a choice for himself and not just reacting in the moment. So it was it was a nice cathartic moment for this character, for him to finally fucking do something, um, even if that something was a return to the status quo, ultimately. The purpose to which his speech impediment is put in this film is exactly what Bakram describes it as. Like, he is he's an object of pity. It's not fair. It's not OK. But that is how he's treated in the course of the film. So, you know, it's 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 an honest depiction, if nothing else. I also liked uh, some of the uh, I mean, the film is fairly basic in terms of its uh, its setting. It's mostly just the streets and some interior buildings in Tehran. But at one point, they venture over to the tomb of Xerxes. And we get to see him sort of wandering across in front of this, like, you know, World Heritage site that, you know, I'm like, oh, I've never, never got a chance to see that before. Probably never will again because, uh, you know, I'd have to go to Iran to do it. So um, that's pretty cool. Uh, some, why why wouldn't you go to Iran? Uh, because they're an enemy of the United States. Yeah, probably. but so is like a lot of places. That guy's like, that guy shouldn't stop you. You're a world traveler. You're, you're kind to all cultures. 
There are lots of places that I would love to see that I would have to wait on relations to improve between our you, respective you countries. You spent like a long happens. holiday in Russia and you hung out with like Putin and you hung out on tanks and... I would not go back to Russia right now. Didn't they like have a parade in your honor or some shit? I was present for a parade. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. There were also nuclear missiles there. Well, Daniel, any final thoughts about the film? I liked it. I thought it was pretty solid. It's a relatively simple story with some nice layering to it. And I thought the performances were, were pretty good. I, I wouldn't necessarily go out of my way to see it. But if you're in the in the mood for a, uh, a an international flick and have liked Iranian films in the past, uh, give it a go. All right. Well, if you have any feedback on our discussion, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com, and you can check out A Hero on Prime Video. And now on to our review of The Lost Daughter. Miss Caruso, welcome. Thank Yes, I have two daughters. Hey, your mommy's a girl. You're my big girl. <sighs> She's driving me crazy. What were your daughters like when they were little? I can't remember much actually. I saw you at the beach today. I didn't see you. I saw you. The little girl lost her doll. She wouldn't stop crying. Children are a crushing responsibility. Happy birthday. That was from the trailer of The Lost Daughter, the new film on Netflix, written for the screen and directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal, based on the novel by Elena Ferrante, starring Olivia Colman, Jesse Buckley, Dakota Johnson, Ed Harris, and Peter Sarsgaard. This film uh, is an adaptation of an Elena Ferrante novel. It is uh, it has gotten nominated for a shockingly high, uh, high number of awards, uh, particularly on the acting side of things. Um, I think the uh, New York Film Critics Cir- uh, Circle Awards uh, were just happening. The Internet Film Critics Society, I saw they were up for, it was up for a bunch of a uh, bunch of different things. Some big fans of the acting on this film. And uh, Daniel, this film uh, was one that I heard about back on the festival circuit when I think when it first played uh, Sundance or, or Con or something last year. Uh, and it actually uh, prompted me to finally check out the literary work of Elena Ferrante, an Italian uh, an Italian author who is a pseudonym. Uh, nobody knows who she actually is. Um, and she released a series of novels called the Neapolitan Novels, which are uh, just a series of basically a four-part uh, buildings roman about uh, two young girls growing up in post-war Italy, uh, kind of starting in the 1950s and uh, going forward from there. Um, I've, I've since read the uh, first book in that series. And uh, it is fantastic. It's legitimately amazing writing. And that was kind of what sold me. I mean, the trailer for that for this movie sold me on reading one of those books and reading that book sold me on watching this movie. If you can uh, if you can follow that. I can. 
Elena Ferrante, definitely worth checking out. Uh, really just a fantastic world building and fantastic sort of uh, rich inner lives uh, for all of her characters. And uh, that's very much what's going on in this film, which is not part of the Neapolitan novels. Uh, it is a completely separate standalone film uh, about a professor, uh, one Leda Caruso, played by Olivia Coleman in the film, played by Jesse Buckley as her younger self. Uh, as a as a professor who is on a vacation on a Greek island and uh, is kind of just grappling with the ghosts of her past, as it were, and uh, dealing with another family with some uh, some young kids and uh, some in, some intrigue going on with them. There's not a whole lot we can talk about in terms of the plot of this film, except that this is very much a character piece and it is very much the Olivia Coleman show. Uh, although I would say to a lesser extent, it is also the Jesse Buckley show. Jesse Buckley is an actress uh, that I think we first saw in The Courier last year, um, and I believe we were both quite quite effusive in praising her performance in that film but it's fair to say she's got a lot more to do in this film than she did in the courier and then of course we all, we have an almost unrecognizable dakota johnson as nina um the uh, young mother as part of this uh, this greek american family from queens that is coming to uh, visit this island so daniel i'll put it to you uh what did you think of this film Ooh, that's a that's an interesting question uh i thought olivia coleman was fantastic I thought that Dakota Johnson was also very good. And Jesse Buckley, the accent didn't match Olivia Coleman's very well, but oh, that, interesting. that's fine. That's a minor thing. They're different. They're from different places. It's fine. I did not notice a difference in the accent, but I am not so great at picking out the differences between English accents. I thought she matched the cadence and sort of the style of speaking of Olivia Coleman's voice very well. Buckley's Irish, so it, it was close enough. It was close enough. So she's doing a fake English accent then. Yeah. I thought the performances were solid. I thought the issues that are brought up with um, having to do with what the role of a mother is what the role of a woman is and just grappling with if you don't necessarily fit the societal uh, box for what you should be <laughs> as a mother and as a woman. Yeah. And that's all very, very interesting and worthy of delving into. I thought the movie was a bit dull, to be honest. Uh, I was waiting for something interesting to happen and it didn't. I was like waiting for the other shoe to drop, I guess. And the shoe remained on dropping. It was fine. It was a good character piece. I liked watching it. I was never bored by it, but I definitely felt like it was dull. And I could definitely see why there's a sharp divide between critics and regular non-critic movie viewing audiences about this film. Because boy, if you're not into these type of slow burn movies, this movie's dreadful. (laughs) I didn't feel that. I didn't feel that way. But I mean, come on. The crux of the movie has to do with a girl's doll like I guess now, come on daniel are you really gonna get hypothetically bored on behalf of others i'm gonna i'm gonna challenge you on this here because no I know i'm gonna be hypothetically bored because i've already seen this movie in an 1899 book called the awakening it's i've already <laughs> read it i this story is not new to me She's not a mother woman. I get it. For those who have not read a 123-year-old novel, why don't you tell us what The Awakening is about? Oh, my God. How did you not, how did you not read that in high school? Okay, so I read it in high school, and I read, I read it again in 2020. Who is the author? Uh, Kate Chopin. I think, okay. it, I think it's Chopin is how you pronounce Chopin. it. Chopin. But it's about a, a woman who is um, uh, from New Orleans, 
Uh, she's kind of vacationing with her husband and she realizes that she doesn't love her husband, that she doesn't love her kids, that she wants to be free, be free of the societal uh, conventions of a Victorian woman. She wants to do art and she wants to have lovers and she wants to not have the responsibility of raising children. She has very limited interactions with her kids in the novel. So the beats of The Awakening are similar to the beats of The Lost Daughter. Uh, so I felt like, I was like, I've seen this before. <laughs> I've read this story before. Well, Daniel, I didn't read that particular book, but I did read Gustave Flaubert's Madame Bovary, which uh, so also features a woman sort of rebelling against the cult of domesticity. I'm the and one who told you to read that. I'm going to push back on you a little bit here because I don't think that this movie uh, has has that much in common with uh, with either of those books for the simple reason that while we are looking at, uh, we do see young a younger version of Leda at the moment when her marriage and her family life is in crisis and she's kind of deciding whether she wants to continue as a wife and mother. And we also see the aftermath of that as she's, uh, you know, as her, her kids are grown now, her kids are, you know, moved away and living their own lives. They're 23 and 25 and she's she's kind of able to do her own thing again. She's far removed from those decisions. The tension is not over whether she will decide to do that or not. The decision's already made. We're just dealing with the aftermath of it now. And it's a question of how she's going to interact with other people who are in the same situation or asking her for advice or how that ordeal has kind of fucked up her morality going forward. I think that what is so interesting about this character is that she does a lot of things in this film that I think she would have a hard time explaining. But it's very much like what you see is what you get with this character. And this is a character that is just seething with rage, but she probably has a hard time explaining what that rage is about. I I said on the night, the lost daughter feels a bit like what Joker would have been as written by someone for whom the rage wasn't entirely hypothetical. You know, this is not just somebody raging about general issues in society that affect people like him theoretically, although it's written by a rich guy who doesn't know anything about any of that shit who wrote it in the trailer the night before it was filmed. This was written a bit more thoughtfully. This was written by somebody for whom the uh, the sort of perils of motherhood are not hypothetical. Um, this was written by somebody who knows that as a mother, when you go on a trip away from your kids for the first time, if you're if you're hopping into that hotel room and ordering room service and ordering a glass and then eventually a bottle of champagne because you're celebrating, what you are celebrating is being away from your kids. And that's the case whether you are a well-suited uh, parent or not, because from the moment you become a parent, your time is no longer your own and it belongs to your kids and it belongs to your partner who you're, who you're raising those kids with. And the most precious gift that you can give anyone. And they say this in this film is your attention. And it, it follows that any attention that you give to somebody else comes at the expense of giving attention to yourself. Any time that you allow the other person raising your kids to have comes at your expense. Well, you, you should know, be thanking to- me. For all the attention I give you on this podcast. (laughs) Because that is attention I could have taken for my own endeavors. And here I am listening to you recap a movie I already watched. Well, Daniel, do you think that I'm making sense here at all? Yeah, you you are. Um, She's a sociopath. I get it. She could have gone to (laughs) therapy. She could have hired a governess. I, I Googled it really quick before the podcast. I said, hire governess, question mark, and a website came up where I could get one. Like, if she's so brilliant as she thinks she is uh, in this film, she could have easily found ways to have her kids be entertained, daycare's a thing, and she could still go about her academic Italian literary translations. 
but she's oh boy, arrogant. She is arrogant, and I'm talking with my hands since I brought up Italy. Uh, she is arrogant, and she's full of herself, and she's a sociopath. And that's fine. Those are all great qualities to have on a character. I'm just telling you, she didn't do much with them in the film. I was kind of, I was a little, a little bored by her because she's not really good interacting with anybody. And aside from, I guess, the bartender boy, which I was really worried that they were going to have sex. I was like, I don't, I don't want that scene. That doesn't need to happen. The role of men in this film is pretty fascinating because we have Ed Harris playing Lyle. And Ed Harris is 71 years old, which means he's exactly as much older than Olivia Coleman as Olivia Coleman is over Paul Mescal, who plays Will, the 24-year-old bartender that uh, that she is uh, briefly and quite persuasively hitting on. If there's one thing that this movie made clear, it's that Olivia Coleman, uh, or at least Leda Caruso, is an absolute charmer. And if you find yourself sitting across a table from her, you'll be captivated by her conversation. But only when she's willing to let it out. I mean, we see the fact that she is so insular throughout so much of this film, those few moments when we see her sort of come out of her shell and the circumstances that provoke that when it's clearly just her indulging kind of her base desires and not having to deal with her responsibilities for a moment. And she just opens up all of a sudden she's a charmer. All of a sudden she's ready to interact with the world. And then she just shuts right back down again later on. And I found that dynamic very interesting and something that Coleman very and Buckley both sell in their performances of this character. Yeah, their their performances are quite enjoyable. I guess where I'm coming from is I got the character. I thought the flashbacks were good. They were well depicted. And it was almost like in parallel to the movie because it didn't really feel like a flashback so much as like a parallel story yeah, being told. timelines almost. And I think that all worked. I wasn't upset with the structure of the film. I just felt like there wasn't enough going on to make me care about the character's actions, I guess. And there were some things uh. in the film that were weird. Like, I, I, I have questions about that maybe uh, we could get into in spoilers. Okay. I want to talk about sort of the main kind of MacGuffin in this film. So I think we should go ahead and get into spoilers here. Then we can talk about kind of the, uh, the weirdness that uh, takes place here. But Daniel, overall, uh, recommend, yay or nay? Thumbs decidedly in the middle. It's hard. Like, it, the performances are really, really good. And so on that basis alone, I'm going to want to recommend it. But the story is... The performances are so good despite the story, I guess. Uh, so it's one of those, if you want a character piece that talks about some serious issues, watch it. It's pretty good. If you're looking for a good narrative arc, maybe seek something else. Interesting. Uh, Daniel, I'm going to compare this movie to one other film that I seem to recall you enjoyed, a movie called Foxcatcher. Do you remember this? I mean, yes. And oh, I got a lot of flack from my colleagues at work because I recommended that film back in the day. And they're like, you're not allowed to recommend movies to me ever again. So character-based tension is not for everyone. I'll give you that. But I think that what was going on in that film was was a, a series of captivating performances and centering around characters who were just not acting in a way that is going to lead to their lasting happiness. Like something's got to give here. What they're doing is not sustainable. It's going to cause some harm. And we're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And that is what I have felt watching this film as well. You say that you've I honestly can't zero in on whether you were bored by this film or not. It seems like you keep going back and forth on, on whether you were or not. You seem to think other people will be bored by this film, and I think that's absolutely true. Um, but I was absolutely riveted by this film because the character tension sold it for There's me. There's no kept... tension in this film. Okay, I don't agree. We'll hash it out in spoilers. And I have, I, have a, I have a question for you when we get into spoilers that I want to posit to you uh, about, about, about what the movie... It's more of an outlier idea, but I want to see what your take is on it. 
Well, um, that is, uh, well, I think we should go ahead and get into spoilers here. Overall, I, I loved this movie. It would, de- it would definitely have been near, if not slightly in my top 10 for last year, if I had seen it in time, I thought this movie was fantastic. I would, but, but obviously I acknowledge that, uh, there are some people for whom this sort of character-based tension and drama is not going to work. Daniel, you seem to be on the fence as to whether this even falls into that category. So I want to respect that, but, um, it sounds like you enjoyed the performances enough that you might be recommending this film. I think for a lot of people, that's not enough and that's fine. I was completely into this film. I did not have a hard time staying with it. I was utterly captivated by it. Um, because what, what's going to happen there's there's something very riveting about a character who is right on the edge of losing their shit for the entire movie it's a big part of what maybe made the movie spencer starring Kristen stewart as uh, as princess diana at a moment of crisis you know there's not much at stake in that movie i already know basically how it's going to end but it's so riveting to watch this character go through this that I was into it. And that's kind of what I felt watching this. This is a character who is on the verge of losing it. And we don't really know how or why, but we know it's going to come and, and more and more layers of that get piled on over the course of the film. And if that, if that sounds like it appeals to you, if it sounds like having enough depth that you care about what's going on to, or what's going on with these characters, or at least feel as if you understand it by the end, uh, this might be the movie for you. So from here on out, spoilers for the lost daughter. Right, Daniel, what's your question? She's dead, right? The whole time? Uh, the whole time? Yeah. I guess it's like some sort of fever dream before she dies. Oh, no, I didn't think that. But I did think she was dead at the end. Yeah, me too. Uh, when, she, when she wakes back up at the beach uh, and ha- gets a call from her daughter. Oh, yeah, 100%. That's not real. an orange in her hand. Yeah. In that scene, she is dead. She collapsed on the beach following being stabbed with a fucking hat pin in the kidney or something. Like, stabbed, like gut stabbed. Definitely something that could kill you. Why not seek medical attention? Well, you know. No, no, you don't know. Like, it seems so. There's so many things in the film that I thought were just kind of weird. Well, she was delirious and drunk and ran herself off the road and probably had a concussion. So, you know. No, but like after she got stabbed with the hat pin, why not seek medical attention? Why not say like I should probably put some Neosporin on this sucker? <laughs> Stop the bleeding. <laughs> Yeah, we don't know why she gets in the car and can, and goes driving around, but it's the sort of thing. I mean, it's right after she revealed that she stole the doll, um, kind of matter of factly, and she also revealed that the reason why she. So she, we we learned that she abandoned her kids when they were ages five and. That seven. was obvious. I, I thought she actually killed Bianca. That was the thing. I thought Bianca was dead. Yeah, they showed them searching for Bianca during a scene, a scene that never gets followed up on, and it's. I guess we're meant to assume she just ran off in the same way that this kid did at one. Uh, that that the kid in the present day. Kids are likely to do that. Yeah, um, and and usually the explanation is they just ran off and and they're perfectly fine. So I didn't really mind there not being a follow up for that, but it, it ends up sort of sta- it ends up sort of being tacked on to the behavior that we see young Bianca engaging in, which is just being an insufferable little shit. Um, Again, a governess would have sorted that out. They would have taught the kid reading, writing, arithmetic. And you have a nanny option. There's daycare. Has she not heard of daycare? What this movie sold really well is the absolute toll that parenthood and specifically motherhood takes on people. The idea that there's this needy person that you just have no choice but to give everything of yourself to and some people are suited for that and some people aren't and watching someone really sort of go through it and realize that they are that they are not up for this 
is pretty painful to watch. You know, it's it's the it's the sort of feeling that I think that every parent can identify with. You know, whether they feel that way themselves or not. Yeah, it's, know, a, ta- I, I it's think- a taboo topic. You're not you're not supposed to talk about how much you hate your kids. It's supposed to be like wink, wink. I hate my kids, but everyone has those feelings. I know. You've probably had them. I'm sure I will have them at some point. Like, I, I get it. I, and again, this is all depicted in The Awakening from 1899. In fact, the main character in The Awakening says, I'm not a mother woman, which is exactly what Liga says <laughs> towards yeah. the end of the film. Yeah, she also says knowingly, she says this to both Nina, uh, Dakota Johnson's character, and she also says it to Callie, uh, who is uh, played the by Mara Domenchik, um, who is about to have her first child at the age of 42, just six years younger than uh, than Olivia Coleman is. Um, and then, uh, of course, Nina already has a child of her own. Um, she says the same thing to both of them. She says, well, you'll find out. Um, and to Nina, she means you'll find out just what a fucking burden this is. Like you think it's bad now, just you wait. Yeah, she refers to it as a crushing burden. Exactly. Yeah. Ch- uh, yeah. Childhood is a colossal struggle or a crushing burden. I think she says a couple different ways at different times. And then uh, Callie, she says she's a bit more vague about it, but she basically says like, yeah, you know, you'll find out. You'll see. I thought her interaction with that family, like I, I guess we're meant to believe that there's some sort of crime family of some kind, yeah. uh, but. I don't know. She's rude to them from the get go as if she's never done a Yelp review on a beach before and, and found out that like sometimes other people are there. <laughs> it, it, it's, it was so strange. Like if, if someone were to ask me big family rules and like, Hey, can you move so we can all sit together? I'd be like, yeah, sure. I don't want to be around you guys anyway. I wouldn't say that part, but, but yeah, absolutely. Because I'm a reasonable person. Well, so the way that it's presented in the film, a few different things are going on in that scene. So prior to them interacting with her in any way, she is clearly drawn to Nina. Um, She is clearly fascinated by watching Nina interact with her daughter, by watching her daughter just kind of constantly needing to grab onto her, pull at her, pull, you know, make her go here, make her go there, grab onto her body. She clearly sees herself in this younger woman and kind of sees her own, sees the sum of her own regrets there. And then when the family finally interacts with her, they don't really talk to her. They just kind of talk about her as if she's just a piece to be moved around the board. Like the way that they asked for her to move was kind of rude. Like, it's not so rude that she should have like said, no, fuck you. I'm staying right here. But it's not like she wasn't within her rights to do that. Like you don't have to move just because some giant group shows up and is being thrown their dicks around. Like, this was her pushing back on the notion that like society has to endlessly accommodate families with kids. And even speaking as somebody who has kids, I think that it's something that people need to have a healthy amount of balance about. Like, yeah, you should accommodate parents and children because raising children is a service that you're performing for society. And it's something that benefits society. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm going (laughs) to stop you there. I don't think I was ever brought into the deciding room as to whether or not you should have children. (laughs) So if you're doing this on my behalf, I want to vote. <laughs> if the basic idea is that we we defend children because they are innocent right. and because they deserve opportunity and because they are the future on which our society is built, then there there needs to be some give and take between we need to be nice with family to families who have kids and families who have kids do not get to use their children as a pass to act like jackasses. Oh, but they and, do. They do constantly. And they absolutely do, yes. And that's happening in this scene, and it's happening in this I, film, I know, so. I know. But, like, her character is just... I, someone had posited online that the whole movie felt like a dream sequence because how she interacts with everybody in the film and how everybody in the film is kind of obsessed with her 
is almost as if like she either she's an unreliable narrator or it's like a dream sequence where like everyone's fixated on her. And I thought that was I thought that was interesting because it definitely was kind of weird how that family's like, we're going to get to know you and interact with you. And like every character, got, like every guy who meets her is like, you're sure you sure are attractive for your age. And I don't know. <laughs> it, it felt it felt a little weird. <laughs> I wasn't sure if that was supposed to be like that was what the book was depicting as well, but I don't know. It kind of felt a little strange that everyone was like obsessed with her. I did not get that vibe really. I, I didn't get the vibe that everybody everybody was obsessed with her. I got the feeling that everybody noticed her, um, and I and you know noticed that she was there. Noti- they noticed her noticing them. You know, this ha- this whole environment had a real kind of small town vibe, like, well, we're all here. We all see each other. Um, I guess I, you know, I, I'm kind of used to that in a depiction of any sort anything that takes place at a resort. You kind of just assume all of the characters are going to know each other and see each other around the pool and what have you. Um, this felt even smaller than your average. You know, this was this was an even smaller cast and, and resort than uh, than like the White Lotus or Forgetting Sarah Marshall or any of these ones where you figure there have to be like hundreds of people there. And it's not reasonable the same people would keep running into each other. But we just kind of accept it because that's the structure of this sort of film. In this case, it's like there are there are like five villas and that's it. And it kind of makes sense. They would keep running into each other. I don't know. I, yeah. That, that I mean, yes and no. Like I, I had friends in dorm rooms. So I got four down and I never saw them. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess I, I, I don't know what to tell you. It's not a feeling that I had watching. The fair, film. The fair. Fact that, it, that Ed Harris was, uh, that Ed Harris's character was initially kind of being a little bit intrusive and a little bit hitting on her. And, then she kind of warms to him by the end. Um, I think because she realizes one, this like I'm obviously not going to sleep with this guy because you know I'm out of his league. And and two, um, this guy, you know, has some interesting conversation to offer. But also, she like freely reveals that she stole this family's doll. And he knows doesn't that care. He knows about it. Yeah. She she flaunts her crime right in front of him because she realizes that he doesn't care. Yeah. So it's. I, the ways in which she handles the doll, she throws it away and then she pulls it back out. She's got it out in front of other people. She's kind of taking the risk of being caught at any given moment, like she wants she to be caught. She buys clothes for the doll. The doll represents her broken relationship with her children, blah, blah, blah. Like, get rid of the doll. I don't care. The family, it didn't make sense to me that the family was so fixated on the doll. Like, I get why a child would be upset that her doll is gone. They're fixated on it because their child is becoming an unholy terror without it. Just buy a different doll. I could buy, like, children... Kids don't work that way, dude. Children, okay, so when I have a kid, they're going to have a single toy. I'm going to call it the toy, and that's all they get. (laughs) Who cares? First of all, your children will get gifts from other people. And And I will throw them out. We will burn them in effigy. Yeah, the the importance of the doll, uh, I didn't really question it too much as the film went on. I think that it was pretty clearly... It's obviously serving a symbolic purpose here, but it's also serving a literal purpose here that she would take such a trifling object from a child kind of to punish the child because the child was being obnoxious, but also to try and sort of relive a time in her life that she has complicated and a mix of positive and negative feelings about. I don't know. I found it very interesting as sort of a personal talisman that she has a relationship with over the course of the film. I I, I mean, I, I can't... Uh, I'm not. I'm not making up my reaction here when I say that I was riveted by how this character was going through this. the The fact that the doll you were was riveted like over a doll. Table, she, the fact that the doll was on the table and the consequences if she were caught hoarding this doll because it's so fucking weird. Who steals a doll from a child? They would assume that she's a sociopath or something. Because she is she a sociopath. Just, 
Now, okay, but uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't stab somebody over a doll like that. Nor would you, you put do up, if you're from fucking Queens, Daniel. <laughs> you wouldn't even put you wouldn't put up flyers every six feet <laughs> over a stupid toy doll. That's not a thing anybody would You'd, do. You need a bag containing a minimum of seventeen gold coins to put up flyers. That's true. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know why this like there's definitely. It's funny, I, I called out the previous film for feeling like a parable, and you're describing all of the ways in which this film also feels like a parable, and I don't disagree with you on any particular point. It gets worked better I just, for you. I did not have that feeling watching this film. So yeah, absolutely, it worked, it worked better for me. Um, I thought that all of the ways in which uh, sort of women discussing motherhood and the role, uh, you know, how their, how their attitudes on it were drilled into them at various points in their life and how those attitudes have changed over time. I found all of that pretty interesting. Agreed. Um, yeah. And, you know, this is somebody who's an academic. This is somebody who's had to think about these things in detail. You know, she, she works in, in translation, but like she's translating literature. You have to be able to understand the idea behind what you're, what you're saying. So you, you, you kind of assume this is a character who has thought about these things kind of a lot. And, Olivia Coleman really sells that in her performance as well. Hey, like, she, she's, uh, she's so up. she's so brilliant. She can figure out all these uh, difficult philosophical translations, in, you know, from Italian, but she can't talk to a three-year-old. Ah, <laughs> loser. <laughs> one one bit of explanation that she gives that I really liked was when she said, you know, she she abandoned her kids at ages five through seven, and then three years later she came back for them. And somebody I don't remember who it was asked why she went back. And she said, well, because I miss them. I'm their mother. Yeah. And I thought that was just such an interesting. And, and then she said she, as if to spell it out even more uh, clearly, says, I'm very selfish. Like she recognizes she's an unfit mother, but she still experiences the feeling of motherhood and was willing to selfishly indulge those by returning to the children that she had no desire to be with. When they're a little bit older and less needy, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Like it, it's fucked up, but it's also like we don't we're not accustomed to seeing women in this role. But but you know we hear about guys running off from their families all the time. Because right, guys always get a free pass for that, or at least it's explained away. Oh, they want to focus on their career, or they you know they found a younger, hotter lover, or or whatever. Right, and but women are what was that? Little from column A, a little yeah, from column Yeah, yeah, right? And then, but women are burdened with, you know, the idea that you have to be there. You have to love your children. You have to always be there for them. You have to be everything for them. Yeah, I, and, and the movie worked in that regard in terms of uh, talking about those issues and, and depicting how that would impact somebody who doesn't have those maternal feelings. The burden of expectations and the burden of being regarded as a failure at who you are because you failed to live up to those expectations and the ways in which that takes its toll on Leda, I completely bought. And this is a multi-layered performance from Olivia Coleman trying to sell all of this. And I and really just that was enough to carry the movie by itself. Now, what about uh, Peter uh, Skarsgård? Did you, did you feel like he was enough of a douchebag? <laughs> You know, he's a uh, uh, the funny thing about it is he's actually married to writer director of the film Maggie Gyllenhaal um, and she thanks him in the end credits. Uh, it, it's the acknowledgments. She thanks my husband, Peter Sarsgaard and my children. And there's two names in there for her kids. Uh, I thought that was that was uh, nice. kind of funny. I'll link to a Vox review here in the show notes. So film critic Alyssa Wilkinson uh, wrote an excellent review of this film on Vox uh, a couple of weeks ago. I'll go ahead and post it in the show notes here. But um, one of the things that she points out is that the men in this film kind of operate around the periphery of the world of the main characters. Right. Like they're there and there's sometimes things to be dealt with or things to be seduced by or things to uh, to be de- – uh, t- 
or, or threats to their to the main characters, but they are not really the point. And that's kind of the feeling that I got about Professor Hardy. Like the fact that she that that she took up with this guy really had nothing to do with him personally. Like Well, he praised her. He was obviously an attractive man who adored her work, but other than that Well, he even says, You're married, so you have to make the first move. Yeah. So he's uh, so that makes him, I guess, kind of a decent bloke as philanderers go. But I, but you know the yeah, but the ball was always in her court. Is my point. Yeah, she she's making the choice here. You know she she's wrecking the home, as it were. <laughs> she wrecked her so, own home. But yeah, the uh, I mean, the other, who are the other men we see in this film? There's Lyle, who you know, yeah, she brings him in for a bit of conversation in Fried Octopus uh, later in the film, but uh, but he's not all that important to the film. He doesn't really have much to do now. The dudes in the uh, in the theater, I, th- I think the the extent to which they serve any purpose, it's to let us know that nobody listens to her, nobody takes her seriously. But the second that a man tells those guys to shut the fuck up, they immediately do. <laughs> well, she th- she threatens to cut off their penises, and I'm like, oh, so thing business is about to pick up, and then no no business picked up. Yeah, they stopped it before before the day. I mean, I was waiting for her to, like huck a chair at one of the kids' heads, and no. Well, yeah, when she goes to the usher to ask for her to do something about it, she's initially like, "So, do you want your money back?" Like the assumption is, I can't do anything about these rambunctious boys who are ruining your movie time because you know it's a boy's world, basically. <laughs> like the, uh, you know, the, this that's well, that's just what they do, isn't it? Well, I, I also run into that. Uh, this is a Greek resort town. What 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 do you think is going? What happen? did you expect? Yeah. <laughs> Americans have the reputation of being overly rowdy in public, and these were uh, th- these were not the Americans acting that way. So it's hard hard to say. But I also know that uh, that you know movie going norms are not the same in every country. And in some places, you do holler at the screen. Yeah, so. uh, if you're gonna um, link a good review of this film, may I recommend you link a bad review of this film? Why certainly. Uh, the yeah, National probably. Review reviewed this film, and I read are you it. Shitting me. And I read it, and it's real bad. <laughs> I might have to back off on my uh, my agreement to to link to this. I don't think I want to link to a national review piece. In my, oh, in come, on, come on, come on! It it, it 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 was offensively bad writing, like uh, in terms of a, how a review went. Well, I know it's a national review. Of course, it's bad. Were they bad because she didn't live up to their their moral expectations? Yeah, yeah. It, ma- it, it made me laugh a lot because I was like, wow, I I I didn't love this film, but like I didn't feel that way. <laughs> well, uh, Daniel, uh, the National Review notwithstanding, uh, any final thoughts about the film? Um, but before that, like, will you at least read it? The national, of, co- of course, I'll read it. Okay, yeah, I, I always love when they try to play film critic. Uh, I laughed a lot, especially when he, when he referred to the family's deplorables. Like, I I, I cracked up at that. <laughs> I, I will say, I think I I I, I I'm definitely taking a more negative uh, spin on the film than than you are, and part of that is but by, by design because when we both like a film. Like that's boring to listen to, much like a movie where nothing happens. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I will say, like this movie, uh, Olivia Coleman is so good. She she is a great great actor, and her emotional delivery on all these lines and and, and just like these little facial ticks, you know, that she has, like how she reacts to things, like her eyes are just constantly watery. Like it's both like a combination of sorrow and rage and regret. It's great. Like, and I think on the merits of the performance alone, the movie's worth watching and, and, and worth discussing uh, before you even take into account the actual like, topics involved. I, I, I'm a little bit more negative because I was waiting for something more interesting to happen with it. Like, did she murder Bianca? <laughs> like, did she, like, like, she just simply left and then came back. Like, 
okay, that's not great. That's not ideal motherhood for sure. But like, I don't care that much. Like, so you, uh, I, 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 the, the aesthetic of this film reminds me of another one starring Dakota Johnson that we saw that was similarly sort of meandering and, uh, and you kept waiting for something to happen. That movie was a bigger splash. Do you remember that one? Vaguely. I'm a big fan of movies that have things that happen. Well, the way in which the, in which the other shoe dropped in that film was there was a fucking murder and that's technically what happens here too if we are interpreting the ending in the same way i mean there's a fucking murder at yeah the end of but this film. okay but there's so many other things that could have happened in the film <laughs> and, and i guess hair murder by hairpin doesn't exactly you know intrigue me that much especially when like dude why wouldn't you want to see a go- movie in which nothing happens i'll show you mama mia but that that one's obviously trading more on style than substance that's a musical musicals are different they're held to a different standard this is true uh, I, I, I think I, I would say this movie for me is a solid six to a seven where it, it, it was worth watching. I enjoyed watching it. I just felt like I've seen it before in The Awakening by Kate Chopin. And <laughs> I thought I was hoping for something a little bit more interesting. Like, like they have music that like sometimes has like a menacing tone to it. I'm like, Ooh, okay, what's going to happen? And then nothing happens. How dare you disrespect the score by one dick on Hinchcliffe. <laughs> I was like, I was like, oh, oh, like uh, Dakota Johnson's angry. Now what's gonna happen? Oh, she pokes her with an uh, eagle. Well, that's not good. She poked her real good in her soft bits, but I hear you. Those bits bleed a lot, Daniel. I like the film. I didn't love it. That's why I have to say. That's fair. It is hard for me to sell these films where it's a character piece, and that's basically how I have to recommend it. But it is a character piece, and that is basically how I have to recommend it. Whereas a hero felt a little bit like homework to me, uh, which, which was where it kind of let me down. This film, in which there is a similarly meandering pace, and I would say probably as little happens, I found the main character much more riveting, and I found her emotional journey over the course of this, and her kind of, basically just the tension of whether she would persist in this completely fucked up and random act that she performs of stealing this child's doll, and what the consequences of that are going to be um, as they're ramping up here. It does not sound that interesting as I'm describing it, but I was utterly captivated by it over the course of the film. You got dolls in your life, Glenn? Fewer than I'd like. I've got a Gundam model kit on the way, though. Interesting. Maybe I'll take that from you and we'll we'll, we'll write a movie script about it. All right. That brings us to the end of our discussion of The Lost Daughter. If you have any feedback on our discussion, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com and you can check out The Lost Daughter on Netflix now. Thank you for tuning in at filmwonk.net and have a good night. (laughs) 